This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Jasmine Ward is absolutely one of my favorite writers working today. Twice a winner of the National Book Award, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and yes, I'm sorry, MacArthur folks, I know you would prefer we not call them genius grants, but it's too fun to say. There's a new novel, Let Us Descend, and we're not in Bois Sauvage anymore. You've written a historical novel, in a way. Can we talk about the roots of this book? So. I stumbled across the idea for this novel around seven years ago. Well, I work and teach at Tulane. I spent a lot of time in the car. And it just so happened that seven years ago, I was on my way to Tulane and I was listening to NPR. And I heard a show called Tripod which that year they were celebrating 300 years of New Orleans history. And I'd heard a couple episodes before and they were about different things like bullfighting in New Orleans or, you know, just random things that happened in New Orleans history that weren't as well known, right? And so on the day that I um, stumbled across this novel idea, I was listening to the show and that show was specifically about the slave trade in New Orleans. And it was specifically about slave pens and slave pens around the city of New Orleans, right? First of all, I didn't know they called them slave pens. Second of all, I did not know that there were so many of them. Third, of course, you know, because I hadn't taken history since high school, like I did not realize that New Orleans was basically the capital of the domestic slave trade once they outlawed transatlantic trade, right? So I didn't know any of those things. And, um, and so I was just you know, I have family in New Orleans. My dad lived there for years. He, I, my uncles lived there. I would go to the city all the time when I was a kid. There's nothing that I saw in the landscape of that city um, that indicated to me that that was the history. And so then I was listening to the program and the historian that the journalist was speaking to said that as of that moment in time, seven years ago, there were only two markers in the city of New Orleans where slave pens had been located or were located. And one of them was in the wrong location, right? Wow. So there's only one, really. And that was a terrible fact to learn. I immediately teared up. I admit I was more emotional at the time because at the time I was pregnant with my, my second child, right? But I teared up because I thought, all of all of the people who came to, who were enslaved and who were sent to that city and came to that city and suffered in that way in that particular way all of that that suffering and that pain has been erased right erased from the landscape and then also been erased from like public consciousness in a way and so i thought what if i write a story specifically about a woman she was a woman from the very beginning what if I write about a story about a woman who is going through that, right? In my own small way, what if I try to bring it back, bring a, bring a person like this and bring this history, this fact back into public consciousness? And so that's where she was born. But I didn't actually write anything about Annas. I didn't write a word of Let Us Descend for maybe two and a half years after that, because I realized really early on that I knew that I didn't know anything. Like I knew nothing, you know? And so I spent 
around two and a half years reading and still felt like I didn't, of course, I could never know everything, right? But still, like I didn't know enough. But I just sort of got to a point after I'd read for so long where I thought, okay, if you wait, if I, I talked to myself, so I was talking to myself, but I was like, okay, if you, if you wait to, be, to begin the, writing this book until you feel like you know enough, you're never going to begin, right? Or, or if you wait to begin this book until you feel like you know all the facts and you won't get anything wrong, you'll never write this book because you can never know all the facts and you'll probably get something wrong. And so I just, I just thought, well, I'm going to, I will start. And if there are things that pop up that I don't know, then I'll just continue to research as I write. But I have to start because basically my fear of getting something wrong, because I was writing in a completely different genre, that was, that was, it was terrifying to me. I mean, I understand on the surface that a historical novel is not what you've been doing with the Bois Sauvage novels, you know, Sing Unburied Sing, Salvage the Bones and Where the Line Bleeds. Those three novels obviously sit in the same world, Mm -hmm. and it's present day, Mm -hmm. and they all share an orbit. Mm -hmm. But thematically, we're talking about grief and loss Mm -hmm. and community. right? And that very thin line between what we consider reality and the supernatural. Right. So I felt like I was very much in your hands and very much in a novel written by you, even though some of the framework was different. Mm -hmm. But I see the direct line between the earlier books and this one, certainly, and the women in this book. I love the women. Yeah. (laughs) I love Annis. I love her mama. I love who we come to see as her grandmother, Mama Aza. But you started with her voice, Annis. You've started with her. You started with her experience. But then there's an extra layer to this as well, which is Dante and the Inferno. And there's a very clear connection between this sort of classic world literature, which I went back too, because of you. And I had not picked up that book in a really long time. (laughs) And in fact, I had to buy a new copy because I had no (laughs) idea where my original copy is. But this connection, right? This canvas, you have this moment, you're in the car, you're listening to NPR, you're doing all the research, but ultimately it's story that carries you through. Right. Right. It is. And I think that was something that I had to muddle my way through. Probably took me the first four to five years of writing, um, which is one reason why this book has taken me a longer amount of time to write than any of the other books. Um, Because I think I was so hung up on the fact that it was taking place in the early 1800s, you know, and and I was still wrestling with that fear that it was hard for me to sink into Annis as a character and live in the moment with Annis as a character and 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 hold space for her voice and hear her voice, right? There was my fear around it all being set in the past and getting things wrong. And then also, at first, the fact that she had little to no physical agency as an enslaved person, I was very hung up on that fact. I couldn't move beyond, like it was very hard for me to figure out how do I write about this person how do I make her 
integral to the plot and like the plot feel natural like to her and who she is without physical agency right and it took me a good like I said like four years at least of writing unsuccessful beginning after unsuccessful beginning after unsuccessful unsuccessful beginning to begin to realize you know I had to get chapters in each time to begin to realize that there are other types of agency that she has she has emotional agency she has mental agent agency. She has imaginative agency. She has a sort of spiritual agency, right? So she can be bound, you know, and someone else can be can direct her, right? And make her physically do things that she doesn't want to do. But she has all of these other ways to sort of uh, move through the world and access her own power. And, you know, I think that's just one of the reasons that it took me, again, so long to get to that point is because you know, unfortunately, with the narrative around enslaved people, I feel like often I won't use the word narrative. I use the word the public, the conversation, the public conversation about okay. people. I feel like that often flattens them. Absolutely. Um, and maybe the language in slave narratives can be hard to access. So we never feel. I don't know. It can. I feel like it can often be hard for us as people. You know who live right now in this moment in time to immerse ourselves in that experience and see, you know, enslaved people as like fully fledged, like complicated, complex people. Um, and, and so I, I think I had to get over all of that too, at the beginning of that process. I think part of it, you know, the way we're taught about slavery, certainly in America, I grew up outside of Boston and the way things get taught or the emphasis that's put on certain moments, they pick their moments when they're teaching, right? But we're missing so much of the historical record, right? right? We have names, we have dates, we have physical characteristics. I mean, literally, enslaved people were not allowed, and I use sort of air quotes around them, but to read or write. And if you could teach yourself or find someone to teach you, that opened up an entire universe. But the idea that you were not because of who you are and your circumstances allowed to learn to read and write, which is a very fundamental human experience. We're missing giant chunks of information. And when we're missing information, people kind of assume that it just didn't exist. Right. right. And so part of the joy for me, and I'm using joy very specifically, part of the joy for me in reading Let Us Descend was watching Annis figure out what mattered to her. And her mother just looms so large in her imagination. And I love her mother as a character. But Anna's fighting with Mama Aza and just saying, well, wait a minute, you know, it's not just immediate obeisance, right? It's not immediately that you have this thing that's bigger than you. And of course, you're just going to let it dictate mm -hmm. what you're doing. And I just, I love those moments where she's kind of doing this, mm, no, mm -hmm. no, no. Mm -hmm. And it gets us, and it's exactly what you're talking about, that agency. And what she can do. Right. She's coming into her personhood in a way. I mean, she spent, you know, the the early, you know, the part before, the, the time before we entered the novel and the early parts of the novel. And she's very much, you know, her mother's daughter. And, you know, her mother has taught her how to navigate this oppressive system. But then when she no longer has, you know, her mother there physically, and she still has 
emotionally, I feel like, you know, because and in, in, in memory, in her memory. So her mother does. Her mother still looms really large, like in Esh's consciousness. And as she's like bringing everything that she has with her to help her to navigate, you know, this world. I think it's to her mother's credit that Annis does approach this spirit, Aza, right? I feel like she's very smart about it. And I think that while she's tempted to just, uh, like it would be easier to just feel that sense of relief at not being and, and and being in the presence of this this supernatural being, right? Who can definitely do things for you. She doesn't completely capitulate, you know? Like she doesn't completely sort of put herself in the hands of that spirit. You know, she still thinks critically and comes to, you know, sort of, understand that like you're saying like what she wants is important what how she may one day want to live that is important you know i think she comes to the understanding that she's not without a certain sense of power um in the world and i think too like that's another thing you know that i feel like we seldom you know think about in reference to enslaved people right the kinds of powers that they had and the kinds of powers that they exercised, right? Even if it's a small thing, like break tool or bargaining with someone who's trying to buy you, right? And changing the narrative around that. They did what they could. I'm also thinking about Annis in terms of not having trust. I mean, why would you... There is somehow an expectation from outside that you would trust the situation you're in, that you keep getting ripped away from your family, you keep getting ripped away from your home, you have no concept of home because it changes without any input from you. All of these things where why should you trust anyone right. around you? I mean, yes, you have peers in a way, and I use that word gently, but at the same time, you don't know them, they don't know you, the ground is always shifting under your feet. So why would you actually trust a supernatural being who comes in and says, well, I can make it all better. Just do what I want. Right. Do what right. I tell you to do. And she's like, she's side-eyeing Ozzy right. going now. Right. Right. And she's heard that her whole life. I mean, in some ways, right? The people who in this world who have power have conti- will continuously, you know, use people like her for whatever they want, to get whatever they want, right? For profit, for you know, money for, you know, for their, to, to provide for their families, right? And and their legacy. And so I think from my understanding of hers, I think that, you know, that, that for her, like, she's like, wait, <laughs> you know, in that respect, you're just like all these, you know, you're just like my sire. You're just like this person. You're just like that person, you know, you, because you have, because you wield this power. I guess they're at that time, and at least in my understanding of this world, there's still some resistance, right, to adopting, you know, or capitulating to Christianity, right? So uh, my understanding of her is that that hasn't necessarily been like uh, sort of drilled into her consciousness, right, to in accepting Christianity, to accept, you know, this matrix of power, right? And uh, yeah, so so I think for her, like, there would be more pushback, more resistance. And another thing is like, it was important for me that she would have call like that. So not only that, that would cause her to distrust Aza, you know, these supernatural beings that keep appearing in her world, 
I thought that it would be interesting if the supernatural world that existed here, if it did have more texture, if it was more complicated, if beings weren't all altruistic and, and, and just wanting to bless people just to bless them, right? Like, I don't know. I, I thought that they would reflect a bit more of of the world and of hu- and the messiness of humanity, I guess. And to me, that goes directly to Greek mythology, but also what I know of African mythology, you know, and I wish there were more. Certainly, I feel like the Greek myths and the Roman myths were put in front of me very clearly and very right. cleanly for a very long time. And I'm just like, well, you know, there are other stories too, but the connection in this case, and especially that piece where, you know, Christianity is not the dominant spiritual force in this context. Why would it be? Right. And we're talking about the 1800s. We haven't the world isn't the world yet, right. but we can see the outlines. Right. And this idea, too, there are moments where Aza is asking Annis for her gratitude. She's like, mm-hmm. you should be grateful to me. I just did this for you. And she's like, right. um, actually, actually, that was Mary or that was Esther or that was my mother teaching me something that everything has its place. But this idea that even in a world that is more familiar than not, power is going to do what power is going to do. And it's interesting to me, you and Zadie Smith both have written historical novels this year. And it's kind of a first, obviously. And yes, it is a different genre. I do want to recognize that it's a different kind of writing experience. But I love the idea that you found a way through Let Us Descend to talk about this moment that we are in. And that you never lose sight of it. And I feel like even though I know I'm mentally in the 1800s, I can recognize Annas. I can recognize her mother. I can even recognize Aza. Mm-hmm. And when you were saying a second ago that you were sort of struggling with making sure you had space for her voice, I was thinking about something you'd said about the writing of Sing Unburied Sing, that Leonie gave you a little bit of trouble, that you had a hard time initially yeah. with her. And I'm thinking, well, you certainly worked it around both of the like. <laughs> I've read the finished books. I know you've worked around it. But the idea that these women are who they are, I still see a direct line between Annis mm-hmm. and Leonie, who happens to actually be one of my favorite characters yeah. in literature. I love her. I mean, I love all of the characters in Sing Unburied Sing, even Michael as much as I can. <laughs> but can we talk about sort of the evolution of the characters and the and the room that you give them? Because, I mean, again, we see characters pop up between all of the three Bois Sauvage novels. I feel like I can see as a reader the line between what's happened in Let Us Descend and where we get to with your mm-hmm. earlier novels. You know, I've been learning as I've as I'm going, right? And um and I think while my first novel was like specifically about, you know, two young men, there were important women around them, their grandmother right? Their absent mother, right? I have been thinking about women and about lineage. Um, and, and, and I think that my thinking around that is especially, is like very specific to me and to where I come from and to my extended family uh, in DeLille, Mississippi, in this rural place. Because here, for me, like the women are the ones who hold everything together. You know, they're the ones who uh, remember the family history, right? They're the ones 
tell those stories and pass those stories down to their children and their grandchildren and their great grandchildren. They are also the ones who like hold the family together in the present, who make holidays happen, who, uh, you know, when the men in their lives sometimes, you know, die or they go away or for whatever reasons, they're not able to be present. Like the women are the one who hold the family together, right? That is something that I, it's a, it's a concern that I've had in all my work. It's something that I've been thinking about from the very first book. And I think that it, it expresses itself in every book differently, right? Until in, you know, in Sing Unburied Sing, when I got to Sing Unburied Sing, you know, here's this character like Leone, who is at the opposite end of the spectrum as far as, you know, women are concerned and, you know, being, uh, as far as like, uh, you know, a woman being a caretaker for a family and a, you know, people, right? She's not doing any of that. And, you know, I've talked, I've spoken about this before. She was a difficult character, character to write because I couldn't understand why she wasn't doing any of that. And it was only when I went in, I stepped away from the novel and I just thought about who she was as a person. And I figured out where that behavior was coming from and why she wasn't doing all that. Like when I figured out her, what was motivating her, then I could re-enter the story. So I've always been sort of thinking about that, right? Like motherhood, caregivers, womanhood, you know, what it means to hold a family together, to hold a community together or not, right? And Let Us Descend really gave me the opportunity to sort of scramble the circumstances a bit, I guess, you know, because here in this world, that choice is taken away from the women, right? From Annis's mother, from Annis's grandmother, right? Mama Aza. In many ways, it's taken away from Annis herself, right? As she's enduring what she endures in the book. And so one of the questions for me to consider was how would Annis or the women of her line accomplish this in spite, in spite of everything, you know, that mm-hmm. they are? made to bear like how do they do that i discovered a lot of answers along the way i mean i think in part they were able to do it because because they hold on to their stories because they hold on to their history because they you know they pass them on and when they can't pass them on anis thinks about them almost obsessively right you know i think that they're that they're able to do it because they make family wherever they go you know Mm -hmm. with the people that they that they encounter, they make sort of you know bonds with the people with with the people that they encounter along the way, um, in order to sort of to do their best to survive. And then and then I think I think one thing that's really beautiful to me about Annis, she has a kind of audacity because she dares to dream right of one day being able to just do whatever she wants to do, like to be able to direct her own day, right? And to just do whatever it is. And and she doesn't have words for it yet, but she wants that. That is freedom for her. her. And at that time, that was a big dream. And she follows it. And I love that for her. You know, I don't know. I, I That's something, I don't know. I haven't talked, I haven't spoken about it a lot. I haven't spoken yep. about it yet. A lot, but I don't know. So sometimes things just occur to me when I'm answering questions. Uh, you know, I can't explain that answer more now. I, I think I need to think on it some more. But 
I really do feel like that's one of the things that I love most about her, that she dares to dream. I think that's really clear. Having read the finished book, I love the fact that she's feisty. I love the fact that she really does not want to have it from anyone, that she doesn't feel forced to pull from a tradition simply because it's a tradition. Right. I think that's, I, I think what you said is really clear in everything she does. As a reader, for me, I liked the tension between her inability to actually drive things forward because she is enslaved. Right. But she's her own person. Right. And it surprises everyone, including the spirit. Like it just surprised. I think the only person who might not be surprised is her mom. Right. Right. I think Sasha might be the only person who's like, well, of course. Right. She's my child. Right. Because she knows, like she knows that she's, yeah, that she's a fighter, that she's, you know, that she loves language, that she's different, that she's all those things that make Annis Annis. And the manifestations of grief, right? When you're pulled from your family, when you're not given a chance to stay put and mm-hmm. have a life and grow and all of these things. You use ghosts in Sing Unburied Sing. It was much more sort of clear in Sing Unburied Sing that it was happening. And here you've taken it to yet another mm-hmm. sort of level with mm-hmm. the supernatural and, and bringing in a new chorus. Mm-hmm. Of voices. And I think it was Kiese Lehman who's been talking about how you write hoodoo. And I <laughs> yeah. love that. I love that phrase. And I just, I really do want to sit with that for a second with you and just because it feels like it was in Salvage the Bones too. Less so, I think, with the first novel for me. But mm-hmm. I mean, Salvage the Bones, obviously, were coming out of Katrina and all of that. I'm just, can we riff on hoodoo for a second? Because yeah. I, I love the idea that this is underlying right. all of these novels. I think we can't explain everything in the world, right? And I think that, um, or at least I like to think that, especially when I'm when I was working on this novel, right? I don't think that I could have written this novel if there wasn't something more to the world than if there wasn't more besides the physical world, right? Like the fact of the chain, the fact of the fact of the brand like those are such hard brutal facts that i think to write this book without recognition of the spiritual and of like of um living evolving like messy spirituality i had to use that in the in this book because to write this book without that would just be horror right and then what am i doing like <laughs> you know that's not not my genre it's not my mission it's not what i'm trying to accomplish in my books and so and 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 too i think that that messy sort of uh evolving spiritual element of black americans lives like i think that that has allowed us to survive and not only to survive but also to thrive through these centuries in this country i want to incorporate more of that in my work and i and i remember feeling that way when I was writing the rough draft of Salvage the Bones. And there's this part in Salvage the Bones, which you probably will not remember, which no one will remember, but I always, you know, I I think about it uh, often because, so there's this part where Ash is at the house and Skeeta and China are out in the woods somewhere. And he's trained, and Skeeta is training China. He's training the dog. And all of a sudden you hear this chorus of barks. 
like one dog starts barking and then another and then another and another. And, but they're all, they're all, they're all around, right? So it's not just, they're not all gathered by China somewhere out in the woods. It's like, there's like this, they're coming from everywhere, right? And when I was writing that moment, I stopped and I was like, I wonder what's happening. Like something weird is happening right now. And I wonder what it is. I want it to go wherever that barking was. I wanted to figure out what strange, unusual, weird, what sort of felt supernatural thing was like happening at that moment. But I couldn't, right? Because my story was right here. And so I stayed. Uh, But I think that that was like, I think the first time that I realized there was more, like something else existed in the world that I was writing about. And a part of me, you know, was very interested in finding out what that other thing was. And so I think that I, and, and it's something that I've always loved in, in, in literature, you know, since I was a high schooler and, and middle school, right? I love, I love magic in literature. I took that limit off of myself because I realized in a way, like I was, I, it, it was a self-imposed limit, I think. I felt like if I was writing, you know, serious literary fiction, <laughs> there could be no magic. You know, like when I think about the people in my family, right? So, so we have all these stories that we tell about my grandmother. My grandmother is older now. She has mem- issues with her memory. That makes it even more important for me to tell the stories that I tell, right? And to acknowledge stuff like, so when my grandmother was born, she was one of a set of twins. And she was born with with what they they called the call over her face. And so down here, back then, in the you know late 1930s, early 1940s, it was said that when a when a child was born with the call over their face, that meant that they would have a second sort of vision, right? Able to know things, and they would have certain like abilities, right? I grew up with this. this is a fact of my life. Several times in my life, where my grandmother has like predicted things, said things, had dreams, et cetera, right? And we just take it as it, you know, we're just like, okay, yep, that's facts, right? But none of that has been reflected in my work. My great-grandmother on my mom's side, my mom's dad's side, it's complicated. She would always tell us a story when I was a little girl about her husband dying and then her husband coming back one night and talking and speaking to her. And I just asked my mom about it like a couple of weeks ago. My mom was like, yeah, supposedly he came back and he told her not to remarry, <laughs> not to remarry. <laughs> and she never, but she never did. And okay. she believed, you know, like that was her experience. She, it was true to her, right? She abided by that for the rest of her life. And so when Annis's mother says the world is wet with spirit, like it's fair sopping with it. I felt that like i I felt like that is more of a reflection of my understanding of the world, sort of the understanding of like that people around me have about the world. And also I think reflects some of that, you know, hoodoo, that adaptive, um, you know, expansive, like spiritual understanding that I think Black Americans have developed. And then you layer in the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, I, I know Dante is where we're starting with Let Us Descend, but we can't ignore the Odyssey and we can't ignore, oh, right, the magic and the spirituality. <laughs> like you're building on all of these world traditions mm-hmm. and layering in 
Black American experience. Right. Right. Which I don't want to lose sight of that. That's part of what makes the book so powerful because it's not, it's pulling from every possible source that made you, you. Right. Right. And, and it's partially why I know when I'm reading a book by you, I'm reading a book by you, whether it's, you know, Sing on Bright Sing, which personal top 10 always, you know, somehow sometimes things shift around. No, that never leaves. That's always, it's a book that I hold really, really close. I mean, you can feel the echoes of Faulkner, you're a Mississippi writer too. So here, <laughs> Dante and the Odyssey and Greek mythology and Hoodoo and African mythology as well, but also we can't really ignore Faulkner. And I heard you have his Nobel speech taped near your desk. I so I did. I um okay. I was recently looking through my um you know, I have so much paperwork, but I was like, you know, I have photo albums and I have files where I've like secreted stuff and hidden it from myself. And so I came across um, a folder that had everything that I had tacked to the wall above my desk when I was working on Where the Line Bleeds. And I was working on Where the Line Bleeds, like writing that rough draft when I was an MFA student at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, right? So here I'm in my sort of first educational experience where I'm just devoting myself, you know, to studying creative writing, mm-hmm. you know, studying literature, and then trying to <laughs> do my best, right, to create some compelling literature. And right now, I don't know how I came across that speech, but I remember re- coming across it, reading it, and thinking, this is it. Like, I can't even, I don't fully, under- I can't fully articulate. There were several sentences in that speech. He was saying, you know, like our our duty as writers is to like write about the human heart in conflict with itself. And there's something about that sentence and that idea, right? Like of the essential work that we should be doing that I thought I need I need to remember this in every moment when I'm writing, right? So I printed it out, the important parts I thought in bold, right? Mm-hmm. I packed it to the wall above my desk. And I think about that speech that he gives his Nobel speech. I think about that speech a lot. And um, and I think about his work a lot. There were so many writers who are important to me. And they taught me how to write, right? Because there are so many things that I find compelling or beautiful or moving, right, about their work. And then I bring it to my own work and I go, well, how can I do that, but not do that exactly. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're my elders, so they're farther ahead than I, right. But I feel like I'm always sort of shouting to them or calling to them over a distance. Right. And, um, I don't know, hoping they hear me in a way. I don't know. It was important to me in this book to incorporate other, uh, texts, right. Specifically, you know, to incorporate Dante's Inferno. There's that bit about, you know, Aristotle. Like I just I feel like that desire carried through to the kinds of spirits that Annis encounters on her journey. Because in the same way that it was important for me to like incorporate these other elements, because they're all a part of me. They are you're right. Like that I, you know, I am I am having an American experience. I'm telling an American story, right? So why not? Like why can't I pull in the Odyssey? Why can't I pull in Dante's Inferno? Why can't I pull in all of these, you know, sort of other, incorporate all these other sort of cultural touchstones into into, into my work? I also 
wanted the kind of spirits that Annis met to reflect that too, right? Like that's because in the beginning, like in the rough draft, I thought, oh, you know, I maybe I can incorporate some, you know, spirits uh, that are regarded and or uh, in Benin, right? In that specific kind of voodoo that they or that you know traditional religion that they practice there. Why can't I? I should incorporate them. Like these are the spirits that she'll encounter in this story. But it didn't work. And then sudden and then finally I I realized, okay, it's not working because these spirits should be specific to this place, right? To this moment in time. Um and so I had to find them. Like I had to open myself up to so that they would appear, right? You set me up to actually toss out something that I was thinking about as I read let us descend. And part of that is how ghosts are manifestations of grief and loss. Right. I mean, you talk about this very clearly in The Men We Reaped, which is the memoir that you wrote sort of in between Sing Unburied Sing and Salvage the Bones. The idea that ghosts also like Leonie in Sing Unburied Sing, ghosts are a piece of her story and a part of Jojo's story. And that we can't actually, and you actually say, hold on, I was looking for my note earlier because um, I destroy galleys, so <laughs> occasionally it makes it difficult. Violence begets remaining is one of the lines that I think is now officially tattooed on the back of my brain. And violence doesn't necessarily imply death. It can be a violent act to remove someone from their home. It can be a violent act to remove them from their community, but that a piece of you stays behind. And that you haunt whoever is behind or they haunt you. Right. And so the idea that we're pretending that there's this piece of the world that's exactly what we see in front of us and, you know, walking down the street and all of that, that there isn't some sort of current or echo beneath. It seems like literature is the best place to play with that idea. And you're doing it and you have been doing it. And I sort of feel like this is going to become more and more of the work. I mean, I realize it took you longer to write Let Us Descend than it took the other books. But this feels really right for where you are. Mm -hmm. But I see it as a launching pad for something else. Hmm. Like, I, I just, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're working. I have no idea what you're working on. But you're really comfortable in this world. You're really comfortable with the characters. You're really comfortable with the story. It's just, and I've read it twice now. Um, once just because I could, and then once when I'm prepping for the show. And it's two different reading experiences, obviously, when you're doing that. But yeah, there's something really special about this book. And I can't quite put my finger on it. Like the language is gorgeous. The characters are great. But it's the whole thing. It's the the whole experience, I think, is what makes it really remarkable. Well, thank you. As a bookseller, I get to read everything early, which is great. I'm wondering, though, what you are working on next, because I may have just put my foot in my mouth. But No, 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 no. I'm, I, um, I want to remember that you said that to me because it will give me confidence moving forward. Um, because actually, I, so I'm in a weird moment right now where because of the amount of work that I have to do, you know, for the, before the publication, mm -hmm. I have not been able to work on anything new yet. Mm -hmm. The next thing that you will see from me um, is actually a uh, middle grade or YA book. Okay. 
contract to write said middle grade or YA book. I have not written a word yet, but I've been reading a lot, you know, uh, because again, I'm challenging myself as a writer because I'm not, I don't, I've never written anything for that particular audience. So yeah, so that's what you'll see for me next. And it too, I think will exist in this, in, in this world, right? There, there's always more, you know, than what you see with your five senses. So yeah, so that's the next thing that I'm working on. Um, and then after that, I don't know. After that, I, I don't know. I, there are a couple of different novel ideas that I've sort of been kicking around for, for maybe the past year, year and a half, maybe. I don't know if they'll come to fruition now or, you know, if I'll kick them around for 10 more years and then tackle them. But I know that I have to write the, I'll write the middle grade book first. And, um, and it's about a girl. There are things that she can do, right? So she's, she, she can access that world beyond or that world that we normally don't access in our everyday. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I'm trying to figure that out. I have lots of notes. If anyone can figure it out, it's you. <laughs> I'm not worried about you figuring out what a world is going to look like for a middle grade or a YA <laughs> reader. I'm not worried about that. At least what I am enjoying is the idea, though, of you bouncing back and forth between age groups. I think, you know, when I was coming up as a young reader, there just wasn't a lot, right? right? You kind of you read everything you could, and then suddenly it was like, well, where's the adult section of the library? Because right. I literally have read everything in this room multiple times. Like, YA just didn't exist in the right. way that it does now. All props to Emmy Kerr and Judy Bloom and, you know, those who were doing it. But there just wasn't what we see now. And, um, you know, so we started punching above our weight pretty fast. Right. <laughs> Not all of it was good. Right. Not all of it was good. But at the same time, you know, to know that we're in a place in books right now where you can be Jasmine Ward for shorter set. Right. And Jasmine Ward, you know, for those of us who want all of it, because, you know, Jojo may not. I love that kid so much. I realize I'm talking about a fiction character like he's real, but I love that kid so much. Jojo might not want to read let us descend. Okay. Fair right. Enough, right? right. <laughs> Let's right. give him something. Right. Let's give him something. Where he sees himself represented, where he sees stories that make sense. I mean, I constantly think about this image of you and your brother driving around listening to Southern rap and Ghostface Killer. You didn't have this world. And I mean, I have spent many hours in the car with my little brother as well, um, right. not listening to Ghostface Killer. Right. <laughs> that I'll totally understand. But the idea that we can find story in music, that we can find story between the covers of a book, or that we find story in unexpected places and in unexpected ways, I think that's just really important. Really, really important. You know, and I'm looking at the clock and I knew this was going to happen, but we ran out of time. I knew this was going to happen. Jasmine Ward, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all of the work and joining us on the show. Let Us Descend is out now. If for some reason you have not read the Bois Sauvage novels, and that's Salvage the Bones and Where the Line Bleeds, and also, of course, Sing Unburied Sing, really, there's that. There's also nonfiction, too. There's The Men We Raped, which is a powerhouse of a memoir and a really 
do recommend that. And um, also The Fire Next Hug, which um, is a collection of essays from lots of folks that you know, and maybe a couple you don't, but it's all fantastic. Thank you so much. Hey readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of wonderful books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Let Us Descend. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hi, Madison. Hello, I'm Madison, joining you from my Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles. So I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. I'm always excited for anything that Jasmine Ward releases, so Let Us Descend is very high on my TBR list. But I was thinking about historical literature that has some magical realism elements to it. And I think this masterful ghost story just was screaming to be announced by me once again, revisited. And that is Beloved by the beloved Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison is a literary icon. She is one of the greats. She is obviously incredibly recognizable, well-lauded, and one of the best authors of all time. So I think... And probably stating the obvious in that this book is wonderful and she is wonderful. But if it means that anybody picks up this book for the first time, that I will feel at least a little bit accomplished. Beloved is a, I would call it a horror fable. It's perfect for October, but it's horror in a way that isn't what you would imagine. It speaks to memory, particularly memory shattered by trauma. It sings to devotion and to resilience and to shame and to choices and really shines a unsettling and honest light on uh, slavery. And I think it's just one of those that, oh God, I just want everybody to read it. Just please do. In basic terms, the novel is about a woman who has escaped slavery. She has been freed, but not freed from the horrors that she experienced on the farm from which she has left. She is haunted by the choices that she's made, by the trauma that she endured, and by a literal ghost of her uh, now dead child. The atrocities of our country's past are the true ghouls in this novel, and the author's absolute mastery of language makes this an absolute must read. You will be sobered, you will be enraged, you will be mildly disgusted, you will be haunted, but you will also be inspired and you will be grateful that this book exists. So please check out Beloved by Toni Morrison. Madison, what do you have for us? Yeah, so mine I feel like can fall in a very similar vein um, as yours. Uh, It's an historical fiction piece. I chose Yellow Wife, by Sadiqa Johnson, which used to be, I think, like, was it last year or either year before was one of our monthly picks. It is also a story about um, slavery. This woman, she was promised freedom. Um, You have our main woman, um, Phoebe Brown. She was actually sent away back into slavery at the infamous Devil's Half Acre in Virginia and forced to marry, like, the owner once she's there. You're just taken on this journey with this woman. And it is truly, I would say this book probably should come with a few trigger warnings because it is because our main character, she's still forced into making these really tough choices of watching like her people in slavery and trying to find that freedom, but also keep her children safe, keep herself safe. And it's such a raw view of what a woman had to go through 
in that period that I could not imagine. And I think Johnson does such a one like graphic yet like stunning job at showing what this woman had to go through. And it is like truly a heartbreaking tale. And I think, as you said, in the simmer of lane, it's kind of a haunting tale because in the world we live in today, thinking that that was even like a possibility in our history is just kind of stunning. And I think you can definitely tell she took her time and put her heart into this book. And I think it's something everyone needs to read, especially like I read it because like if I wasn't alive in that time, I don't exactly know what it would have been like to live in that situation and just kind of having such a story that could like kind of present that was so eye-opening I think it's just a powerful story I absolutely agree I think both of those books do something that I've talked about uh, with fiction before in that it builds perspective, it builds empathy, it stretches those muscles in the best possible way. Fantastic choice. I think The Yellow Wife is stunning. But that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Madison, where can we find you? I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.